You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. This is about Mary Russell, who is a very rational kind of believer. Marjorie Child spoke of love for a solid hour, holding her audience wrapped until her final blessing. There's little point in presenting her homily in its entirety, because in print, without the dramatic pauses and husky thrill of her voice, the words lose their fizz like warm champagne. Indeed, even as she was saying the words, I found them absolutely maddening, an often ill-suited amalgam of personal sophistication and scriptural superficiality. Mixed metaphors, rambling thoughts held together only by the force of her personality, and pierced at a handful of unforeseen points by bolts of blinding perception. Her theology was rustic in its training, if training it could be called, sporadic in its development, and often wildly unsuccessful in its attempts at exegesis or midrash. For someone like me, with my background and my own careful passions, it might have sent me gibbering away into the night. But for one thing, despite her unread, unsophisticated, raw, rude, and unlettered approach to scripture, when it came to zeroing in on her target, she was dead center accurate. It hit me about halfway through her talk. Talk, what an inadequate word for the woman's passionate display of exultation, despair, pity, joy. What it was that I was hearing, and with that awareness I sat back in my seat with a jolt that startled my neighbors. The woman was a mystic. Laurie R. King is the best-selling author of the Mary Russell Sherlock Holmes novels, the Kate Martinelli series, and the forthcoming Bennett Gray Harry Stavistin series. <laughs> Thank you for joining me, Laurie. Thank you, Rick. Your new novel is a sequel to Touchstone called The Bones of Paris. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about Touchstone and Bennett Gray, Harris Stuvestant. Stuyvesant. Stuyvesant. Stuyvesant, yes. <laughs> you know, you w- I would pick a, a name for somebody that nobody can pronounce except those who studied New York history, I think. I think the only, the only reason, I wanted a name that sort of said New York, but nobody can pronounce it, so. Good job. I, yeah, <laughs> worked, worked really well, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. uh, this is an interesting, uh, another historical uh mystery series. So I'd like you to talk about choosing these characters. I really like these characters. I think they're really interesting. And I, I like this, you know, the proto origins of the FBI buried in here. So talk about making the choice to do this when you have two other series going. <laughs> and- well, the, the reason that anybody does more than one series is because there's certain kinds of things that you can't do within the boundaries of the series you've chosen. So that, you know, when I wrote the Russell and Holmes series, it works really well for certain kinds of whimsical things, but for more serious approaches to storytelling, it, there were just things I couldn't do with it. So I, um, I branched out into standalones and the, um, and the, the, the Kate Martinelli um, cop series. And and yet, e- even then, um, my my poor um, gnawing brain couldn't quite 
couldn't quite find ways of telling certain sorts of things within the, the two series. And so I started doing a book um, that was, I suppose you could say that Touchstone is my 9-11 book because it looks at why do people become terrorists? What is the, um, the, the, the self-perceived purpose of, of terrorist acts? And is there, is there any dialogue that can be had with someone who chooses a terrorist act as a way of expressing an opinion? <laughs> and so I, I chose, because I, I tend to write historical fiction, I tend to be interested in how you can tell a modern-day story set in previous times that act as a mirror. I set the, the story in 1926 London, when there's the general strike is rising up all over England and Scotland. And the country believed, firmly believed, that the communist revolution was at hand, that um, the country was about to become a Bolshevik colony and that the, the king and queen would be executed on the steps of Buckingham Palace, that the shilling would give way to the ruble. I mean, this was seriously, there were elements of, in Britain who seriously believed this. And in a, in a more realistic side of, of that, that period, the general strike period, it gave rise to the British fascination with fascism and how the, the Mosley uh, response to the communist threat came up and... Um, and was even, even more of a threat, ironically, than the, the, the actual perceived threat of communism. And the Bolshevism. cure is worse than the disease. It was, it was. And so I was really fascinated with how this time came together and how this time shaped um, Britain of, uh, of the 20th and 21st century. And, and so that's where Touchstone came from. So I decided to write a series of stories that, that sort of marched their way between the wars. The Russell series has a lot to do with the, with the First World War, and I doubt that I'll ever get to um, 1940. <laughs> Certainly not with Mary Russell. She, she tends to fit in a lot of books in one year. But I wanted to look at that period between the wars in Europe in general. And so I, I started, as I said, in London in 1926. But I was also interested in Paris and Paris in 1929 specifically, when everything was on the edge, when things were just about to collapse and implode and blow up in all directions. And as a, as a writer, I can make use of, um, of the fact that those who read it are, are going to be able to know that when I, when I have people gloating over the stock market in September 1929, that isn't going to last very long. November is coming, and, you know. The, the, the world will, will suddenly collapse under its own um, hubris. And, and Paris itself had been this center of the arts and literature, especially for American uh, literature, all, you know, the, all the years since, uh, since the war ended. But by 1929, it was beginning to, uh, beginning to come to an end, and all the real writers had moved off, and the real painters had gone to the south of France, and, and all that was left in 
Paris where the hangers on and the criminals. So, ideal for a crime writer. Just ideal. It sounds like uh, you, I can tell that you're already, that you're having, you had a lot of fun writing this novel. It was, it was really an interesting thing, yeah. Um, a standalone or, a, or a, you know, even a series thriller like, like these are, it's a lot more work than a series novel because with a series novel, you, you have your basic characters and you sort of, you, you know the time and you, you can research the place, but you're, you sort of have a lot of the background already set, but a completely new set of characters and new novel and all the rest of it is, it's a, it's a whole different universe. The other box had a similar mix of objets divers, pieces of photographs, bits of rubbish, bones, with touches of paint to suggest gore. Its center square held what looked like a miniature cityscape, a bleached Manhattan, its skyscrapers made of stubby little white bones that suggested human phalanges, but were no doubt the tailbones of a dog. Two of the buildings were topped with pools of gleaming crimson, like rooftop swimming pools brimming with fresh blood. The boxes were unsettling. One made him think of childhood fears, the other how dangerous loneliness could be. Could a box full of odds and ends provoke such distinct emotions? They were intellectual memento mori, overlaid with an almost erotic degree of violence, and his knee-jerk reaction was to take them down and stick them behind the wardrobe. But why? He'd seen modern art a lot weirder and certainly more graphic. The heat's melting your brain, Harris, my boy, he muttered aloud. I'd like you to talk a little bit about um, one of the things that interests me about your books is the collision between belief and faith and knowledge, pure knowledge, you know, based Touching, touching the table, yes, it's a real table, not a faith table knowledge. Uh, my hands are doing this knocking, not the spirits. <laughs> Funny you should, you should use that analogy. One of my very first classes in, um, in religious studies when I was a, a student at a junior college in, in Saratoga was a, a class in, in religion. It was sort of beyond being 1A, it was sort of 1AA, it was for, for real beginners. And so there were two professors who were doing um, a, a lecture one time, and one of them had this very peculiar belief of, um, he called it Christian objectivism. So it was Anne Rand, but with um, a Christian responsibility. It was odd, but... I, oh, that I, sounds very current and frighteningly yeah, so. Yeah, I, I just, I couldn't quite, anyway, I couldn't get my head around it then, and I certainly can't now. But his, his belief was that belief is all, so that if you don't believe in something, it doesn't actually exist. Well, my teacher was this very blunt, no-nonsense guy who didn't have a lot to say, but when he said it, you really listened and so he's listening to this Christian objectivist ramble on and on about how belief is all, and you know, and and he picks up a chair and hits the guy with it. <laughs> and then, well, if you didn't believe in the chair, it wouldn't have bruised you. <laughs> and I, I thought, okay, now that's a religious attitude I can get behind. 
so I, I, I'm always sort of been more along with the the idea that a, a chair actually is a chair, and you know, if you don't believe in it, you can still trip over it in a dark room. But one of the things I think you do very well is use uh, the beliefs people who believe otherwise. It informs their characters, driving them to actions that are probably not so wise, but good for a crime novelist. In crime, we're dealing with passions. Uh, I mean, any kind of passionate act or belief that, um, that, that humans experience is grist for the mill of a crime writer. So whether it's lust or greed or the thirst for revenge or religious belief, it's a valid beginning for a novel. So that's, that's what I look for in, in writing, in my characters, is where is their, their core passion? And, uh, and in some of the books that I do, religion enters into it almost not at all. The characters don't live and breathe r- religious belief. But in others, it's central to the storyline. In Monstrous Regiment of Women, the main character has Mary Russell's main interest is in theology rather than religion. She's very private about what her religious beliefs are. She is Jewish. She has beliefs, but she talks about them as little as she talks about her sex life. This is this is something that she she's a a little cherry about discussing. Um, And and that Yet she comes to face to face in London with this woman who is a passionate mystic and a believer in God as a, a, a person, as a divine voice that you listen to and you sing with and you take joy in. So it's, it, it's startling for this rational Mary Russell and her, um, her as she said, careful beliefs to, um, to come across somebody who has passion in what she thinks of as being intellectual. One of the the passions, I think, that drives all of your series and makes them so enjoyable is your interest in creating stories set in other times, but that really speak directly to the way we live now and often to current events. You managed to do that really well without involving any anachronisms. You have it both ways which is difficult. And I'm wondering, as a writer, do you, when you're putting these stories together like Touchstone or A Monstrous a Regiment of Women, do you find you have to write the whole thing and then maybe pull some of the more, the stuff that's more informed by what's going on now back? Or does it, do you write the historical story and then look and say, well, I want to discuss this 9-11 you know, a little bit more? Yes, to both. I usually choose a time and place knowing that there is some some way to make it resonate to the, the modern ear. And so I write a book that is set in what was then called Palestine, uh, knowing that I am writing for people who are familiar on a day-to-day basis with the ongoing problems in Israel. So I, I choose characters and themes in the books that I know are going to lead me into that, um, that interesting intersection of now and then. 
that place where a historical novel is a mirror for, for us to look at ourselves in. The same way in the game, which is set in northern India, there's no way of talking about northern India to a modern reader without talking about you know, Afghanistan and the endless war that's taken place there for the last <laughs> three, 300, 2,000 years. I mean, you know, that's just, that's just part of the vocabulary of the time and place. So, but as I, as I write the book, I also come across events that I think, ah, this is, you know, an interesting little tidbit that I can shape into something um, very compelling for a modern reader. So it's, it's both a deliberate thing and uh, a bit of serendipity as I go along. Let's talk a little bit about The Bones of Paris. I'm really interested in uh, Bennett Gray and, and Harris Stuyvesant. Good. <laughs> Got it this time. <laughs> yes. Do you have any concept of where you're going to take these two characters in, in a bigger plot arc? And, and Yeah, but... You know, there, there's there's two problems with that. One of them is I'm not going to tell you now. Okay. <laughs> uh, and two of them is I I don't tend to do outlines of a book, mm-hmm. and much less do I do an outline of a series. So I have a vague idea where it's going. I have a kind of feel for where I want the characters to be ending up. It's not going to be an open-ended series like the Russells. Russell and Holmes could just go on forever. And and I think even Martinelli could have several more, which I, I know people would like to have, but I'm trying. But I think that the, the Stuyvesant and Gray stories, I'm envisioning four or perhaps five set between the two wars and looking at aspects of Western society as it's traveling from the carnage of the Western Front to yet again, here we go. And I think that the next one, so that there's London, there's Paris, and I think the next one that I'd really like to look at is the Spanish Civil War, which was the opening the door for the Second World War. Do you uh, allow yourself to travel to these destinations? I, I Yeah, I don't <laughs> write about places that I haven't been to. <clears throat> I, I say that I don't write about a place I haven't at least driven through by daylight. So, yes, I I do write about... I don't know how you can really set your characters in a place when you haven't felt what the air smells like and what the people look like and how the buildings stand. I, I know theoretically you could, but I find it really helpful to have been there. So, yes. You're juggling three different series... That sounds, uh, I put that in the easier said than done category because you have demands uh, from publishers and from bookstores, booksellers, and from readers and fans and for all three. interviewers all. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like you to talk about uh, weighing those and also your own inclinations as a writer. I mean, there must be things, and you also have done some fabulous standalones too. There's, yes, I, I think every every writer hopes that they live to be 112 because there's all sorts of things that I'd like to take to take another look at. The two of the standalones that I did, Folly and Keeping Watch, are related. The characters are related. We love those I, books. They're I, super, super wonderful. Thank you. I, 
I enjoy the books, and I think part one of the drawbacks of having a successful series is that the publishing is set up then to encourage you to do more of that series because it's a it's a machine that they know how it works and they can they can easily feed it into the publishing world and it's it's a safe bet. Whereas if there's something you haven't written in in a while, um, the risks of if it doesn't succeed, you, you know, we're we're all going to die, Henny Penny. The sky will fall and nobody will ever buy a book again. So uh, when I do something like propose a return to Folly and Keeping Watch, the only thing they can do is go back and look at the numbers. And, of course, the numbers, which were based, you know, what is it, 10 years ago, are, are not as good as the numbers for Garment of Shadows. And so you sort of have to pat them on the head and say, it'll all be fine. So at some point, I will have this discussion with my editor, and Random House will tear its hair, and we'll, we'll, we'll all be fine. You're going to go back to Folly and I'd like, Place? I'd like, I, to write, wow. I'd like to write a book about Ed, the tattooed philosopher boatman. I really want to spend <laughs> a year with Ed. I, not, not any longer than a year, because he's really quite a madman, but I really would like to look at that character. And I'd like to make that... The, the, there's a the two-part now. That would make it a three-part. And I'd like to write a fourth one that would tie in the characters from one that is apparently unrelated to it, that is uh, A Darker Place. Uh, a Darker Place is about a woman who investigates cults for the FBI. And there are two children who appear in it that at the end of the book, you don't really know what happens to those kids. And I would like to know what happens to those kids. So I'd like to write a book that ties it in with the other. So I don't know if you call it a series or a, or a quintet of novels, but um, I'd like to do a cycle with the San Juan um, character. So this is something my, my publisher doesn't know yet. <laughs> Boy, that sounds fabulous. It's one of those things that often writers get fantasies of, you know, winning the MacArthur Award, which would enable you to just sit and do what you wanted for a couple of years. And, uh, and I think that's what I would do is... Whether the whether the Martinelli would come first or the um, Ed Ed book would come first, I'm not sure, but that's that's where I'd go. You and Leslie Klinger, you're out to uh, <laughs> versus <laughs> the the Doyle machine. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that. That's uh, well, Les is the the Don Quixote in my life. He's taken um, his. Uh, uh, he's ridden off on his um, steed into the wilds of Malibu and is um, is trying to get legal recognition of the fact that um, of the 56 short stories and four novels in the Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes canon, there are 10 short stories that remain in copyright. And... Those nobody's arguing with the fact that the estate controls the copyright on those ten stories. However, the estate is claiming that the other stories, the other forty-six short stories and four novels, that the characters in those are also under copyright. So that Sherlock Holmes, Doctor Watson, Mrs. Hudson, Inspector Lestrade, Mycroft, and the rest of them, who appear already in those out of, out of 
copyright short stories. The Conan Doyle estate claims that they are under copyright. And so Les Klinger, who is a very prominent Sherlockian and member of the Baker Street Irregulars, has filed a court case to have the, um, the courts recognize that the way copyright law works is that if you establish the characteristics of a character in stories that are no longer legally under copyright, that the, those characteristics and that character are by definition not under copyright. This is something that the Conan Doyle estate keeps pushing on. They have <clears throat> taken to um, threatening, for example, the way, the way it came to a, to a head was that Les and I are editing a second volume of original Sherlock Holmes-inspired short stories. And the estate um, threatened the, the publisher with protesting its violation of copyright on such venues as Kindle and, and the, the Nook site, which would mean that those books would not be on sale, and it would mean that the publisher um, would have to fight a legal battle on their own. And th the publisher is not willing to take that on, however Les Klinger was. So that's where that stands, and it's it's going to be interesting to see where it um, where it ends up. Um, I am not legally involved, although Les is a friend of mine, and and so you know obviously I I watch with interest, and and I, I think that um, the Conan Doyle estate has had far too many people tugging their brow for far too long because it's so easy for major corporations such as film and television studios to just write a check rather than than say well but you don't have the right to stop this i mean warner brothers is not going to take a risk on having a court case against them filed the day before a sherlock holmes movie with robert downey jr opens in theaters so it's much simpler for them to write a check and that's that's Les's opinion is that that behavior has gone on too long, and so Don Quixote mounts his loyal steed, Rocinante, and rides off into the court cases. And does this mean we're any closer to seeing uh, Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes on the silver screen? Oh, I have nothing to do with the, you know, with the, the court case or the, um, or indeed at the moment any, any. Uh, movie or television project. Um, I have agents, Hollywood agents, who often talk to people, and they are often in talks, and there are various people who are interested, but there's nothing coming up yet. Well, we'll look forward to that, and especially, more importantly, to your next book, The Bones of Paris, because reading is actually far superior to any uh, yeah. movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been speaking with Lori King. Her forthcoming book is The Bones of Paris. Thank you for joining me, Lori. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.